Welcome to the Need to Know podcast from the Wilson Center, a podcast for policymakers available to everyone. Always informative, nonpartisan, and relevant, we go beyond the headlines to understand the trend lines in foreign policy. Welcome back to the Need to Know podcast, and joining me today is a new member of the Wilson Center family. Dan Hamilton comes to us from the School of Advanced International Studies, SICE, over at Johns Hopkins, and is now joining the Wilson Center as our new director of the Global Europe program. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much. Glad to be here. So when it comes to Europe and the the Global Europe program that you now run here, you know, when you talk about policymakers talking about Europe, generally Europe, I mean, they're, they're allies with us. We have NATO. They're mostly democratic institutions. You know, every once in a while we have a debt crisis or question whether or not the place is going to fall apart. But on the whole, the relationship is stable. So what, when you're talking to policymakers, what is it that you're trying to make sure that they're keeping in mind? Well, I would say, uh, you know, often the question is, why should I care about some of these international issues? I think particularly for members of Congress and congressional staff who are, you know, very focused on uh, immediate kinds of concerns. So it's a good question. I think a quick answer is to say where it matters for your constituents in your district. It's often in the, in the you know, pocketbook issues. So the United States, despite a lot of a lot of media about the rise of China and all of this, the United, you know, the closest and densest economic relationships we have in the world with another continent are with Europe. Uh, we, it's a $5.6 trillion economy. Uh, it employs 15 million people on both sides Atlantic. We talk a lot about offshoring jobs, right? But there's also something called onshoring jobs. And the biggest investors in the U.S. economy and the biggest creator of jobs in America are European companies. They don't just send stuff across the ocean. They invest in our cities and in our rural areas, and they uh, you know, create the wherewithal for the American economy. So uh, if you look at that in a, in a close way, it, it makes a difference often to some constituencies in certain districts. One time I was pulled in by a staffer to have an hour with his member who had just been put on the Foreign Affairs Committee. And the members didn't really know why, right? It was sort of what he got. And I spent an hour, I said, go in and tell him about what, what, why you should care about Europe. And I said, you know, I started with NATO and all of this big stuff and I could see he wasn't paying attention. I finally pulled out my jobs data and I showed that his district, you know, was really heavily tied into the transatlantic economy. He first said, I don't believe this. Where did you get this data? And I said, it's just government data. And then he said, well, we're the capital in his district. We're the capital of Latin America. You know, we have close ties to Latin America. And I had to show him that, you know, uh, there might have been societal ties, but no money flowing from Latin America to his district. Hmm. It was all be coming from Europe. He said, I'll bet my mortgage this can't be true. I've never heard this before. And I said, well, European probably owns your mortgage. (laughs) And this is where the jobs are. And he said, you know, that's now, I get it now why I'm on the Foreign Affairs Committee. I'm going to focus on that stuff. So I can give you, you know, anecdotes across the country. Uh, Charlotte, North Carolina, for instance, is the major center of German investment in the United States. It's not big companies. It's hundreds of small German companies that decided that Charlotte is the place to be. 
And what they did was work with Central Piedmont Community College to create a curriculum so that graduates from that college can get a job, a good paying job at the local German companies because hmm. they were being educated. They worked for the economy. Uh, Hartford, Connecticut has two industries, insurance, uh, which has been bought by German companies, uh, and aircraft engines, which are all being made for Airbus. Uh, and so the entire economy of Hartford is totally dependent on uh, the European economy. The county of Los Angeles in California, more jobs are provided by European companies than Asian companies. You wouldn't know that, and that's not the debate in California, but it's, you know, it's just the reality. So we're deeply tied, and I think that's the uh, foundation by which we can engage with each other on some of the more, you know, pressing uh, issues of legislation and, and international affairs. And it does seem like there has been a lot of investment in recent years, particularly from car companies, right? We get a lot of European car companies that are coming, you know, Mercedes. And BMW, BMW BMW is the number one American car exporter to the world. Wow. Not yeah. General Motors, not Ford. Their plant in Spartanburg, South Carolina is bigger than their plant in Munich. And they produce a car that never existed before and export that car from the United States to the rest of the world. So it's made in the USA, thousands of really good paying U.S. jobs. And, you know, that's the interaction. But the plant in Munich sends, uh, sends engines and the front bumper assembly over to Spartanburg where they assemble those parts. And then they export them back to Germany. You know, those cars in Germany are actually been made in the United States, not in Germany. So it's, it's a really dense relationship, uh, but the investment is what drives it, not the trade flows necessarily. So what are the issue areas that you think Congress and policymakers need to be thinking about with the European relationship? I mean, we have issues that I think, uh, particularly in Congress, uh, one uh, needs to, you know, will be forced to pay attention to, but um, it's good to, you know, think about. For instance, uh, the European Court of Justice this summer uh, made a ruling that invalidated uh, what's called the privacy shield. So it is an agree was an agreement between the United States and the European Union, so 500 million Europeans that data flows between the US and Europe were considered sort of, you know, protections were sort of considered equivalent on both sides of the Atlantic. And the court said that's not true, that the US is not protecting personal data and privacy rights in the same way as the European Union. We could debate whether that's true or not, but the point is a legal judgment was made that has invalidated those flows and those, you know, the data, the digital economy is sort of the, the lifeblood now of our economy. So if you, if you can't have those flows going, uh, it chills the entire economy. So all those jobs I was just talking about are really at direct risk because of this court ruling. So we have to get back on track with a new deal with the Europeans on privacy rights and data flows. That would be a big agenda coming up, uh, and it's not going to get resolved until after the election probably. And it's, and it's not an easy thing to solve. I mean, the, the Europeans have a very strong and strict privacy law. What, what, is, what has led Europe down that path uh, to be so, so much further along on privacy than the United States is? Well, you think about European history a bit, particularly World War II, and uh, I think particularly if you think about Germany, uh, 
uh, and the Nazis, they abused everyone's privacy. You know, they were a total totalitarian state. And the Germans have this sort of visceral, you know, reaction to the state uh, taking your data or any big organization. And if you add to that the Cold War and, you know, countries like Poland, the Baltic states, Czech Republic, were all part of the Soviet world in which, again, it was, it was uh, the state, you know, in control of your life. So they, they just react viscerally to the notion of that the, the government is intruding. Uh, and they believe privacy is a human right. It's not a subject of negotiation. It's a right. And so you can't really, you know, compromise on that. In the United States, we have very strong privacy protections, but we have, because of September 11th, because of many of our concerns about terrorism and other things, we have created new provisions that allow the government and other uh, companies to access our data in lots of ways that uh, Europeans find unsettling. So it's, it's just two different traditions sort of clashing. And uh, if we can't get it right, uh, you know, we, we aren't able to provide a common basis for dealing with countries around the world that have even less uh, regard uh, for privacy. Well, that's interesting. It really shows the difference in historical memory and how that affects current policy. So that's a big one uh, coming our way, and it's with us right now. Another trade issue is on tariffs. Uh, even though we're, you know, we have probably the most open economy in the world, uh, U.S. has slapped tariffs on the Europeans recently for uh, what President Trump has called national security reasons, uh, and has threatened to impose more on our al- our very allies. And so they don't, of course, understand that too well, and have retaliated with some other types of tariffs on on some U.S. products. We've avoided a, a trade war uh, the way that the U.S. is being engaged with China, um, but it's simmering, uh, and uh, it could be a problem um, going forward. You say we're not in a trade war like we were with China, but the Trump administration definitely has made these trade moves, um, and they ramped up the pressure on Mexico and Canada in order to get a new NAFTA deal, which was successful in, in getting that passed through all three countries. So is there some, is there kind of a look towards a, a NAFTA-type block with the European Union, some kind of increased trade deals? I know we, we TTIP's been kind of kicked around for years. What's the status and where are we heading for that? Where do you see that going? Well, that and that negotiation, the Transatlantic Trade and Investment Partnership (TTIP), that was an Obama administration initiative that President Trump froze right right when he entered office, and they've never really come back to that. Um, I think the going forward, we have two tracks we have to consider. That again, the Congress is in charge of trade, so it's important uh, to consider this. One is what would be the frame of a U.S.-EU kind of arrangement. Uh, the EU is suggesting we do it sequentially. Instead of one big deal, that we do just a free trade and industrial goods first, because the tariffs are on, on manufactured goods and things are kind of low, but they're there. And because our economy is so big, even small difference in tariffs make a big deal. Um, many U.S. farm states and others say, uh, hey, hold on, you know, we can't do that unless you deal with agriculture. And, uh, and so it's a kind of a standoff again, whether we have to include agriculture uh, because many of our uh, members will want that 
or whether we do it, you know, one thing at a time. The Europeans are very nervous about having an ag deal with the United States. There are also questions about not just, you know, how much agriculture could be exported to Europe, but uh, things like genetically modified organisms and all sorts of, you know, different ways we deal with the science of producing food uh, has created all sorts of issues because, again, if food standards are different in Europe than here, each side thinks it has the better case to make, but um, we're not aligned on that. But the other track that's coming our way is uh, the United Kingdom. So the UK, you know, is, leave, is this year is a transition year. It has officially left the European Union, but until December, end of December, it's sort of in a transition world. And so it's having to negotiate a new deal with the European Union, a new trade deal, but also with the United States, because it's been part of the EU for so long, it doesn't have an independent uh, trade authority. So the U.S. is negotiating right now with the U.K. on a trade deal, uh, and the U.K. is negotiating with the EU on a trade deal. So those two are going to come together in some way uh, at the end of this year. Either they're not going to be done, or one will be ahead of the other. But whoever wins the election in uh, November will be confronted with sort of a very murky uh, landscape and frankly, the Trade Promotion Authority uh, runs out next uh, toward the uh, you know, mid-year next year, in which the Congress will have to take a proactive step. So the Congress is right in the middle of all that. Uh, and it, again, it's coming our way. Before we get to the sort of on the horizon post-election thing, I wanted to bring, go circle back to something you had mentioned about Airbus being in Hartford. And I, I'm I'm reminded, you know, there's a lot of sort of protectionism of Boeing and American aircraft infrastructure and companies. So what when when you talk about some of the the Buy America provisions and things like that, what happens with some of these European countries like Airbus that are producing American jobs and things are being produced in America? Well, I think we've gotten into a situation in which uh, each side sort of has adopted the the respective company as sort of their champion. So, you know, Boeing means America and Airbus means Europe. If you look at how they really produce planes, you see that it's really a segmented process in which a lot of Europeans are employed by Boeing and a lot of Americans are employed by Airbus. So it's not so clear, really. It, it, in my mind, it should be more about competition and about a viable aircraft industry um, but it has turned not into that. And both sides have been subsidizing their respective champions. We both lost at the World Trade Organization court rulings about violating the rules. Europeans just lost you know, a big judgment against them and are uh, having to pay billions of dollars to the United States because of that. But there's another case against Boeing that's probably going to turn against the U.S., it would seem to me a, a case for a next administration, who, again, whoever wins, would be just fix that, right? Just try to fix the Boeing Airbus thing. Take it on as a case and try to get it done so that it doesn't sort of sour so many other issues that we have uh, together. It's kind of a, a one-off kind of issue, but it's, it is quite important. So looking down past November 3rd, uh, you mentioned some of the things that really that Congress needs to be aware of. But what do you see as the relationship with Europe goes into uh, this next decade? And whether it's a, a Trump administration or whether it's a Biden administration, 
what do you, what do you see for each side as sort of the track that we would be going we would be going down? Well, I think uh, the way you think about Europe, I think, as American today, is uh, the answer to this simple question: Do you think Europe is stable or fragile? Uh, if you think Europe has sort of overcome its history and the Cold War's over, they're building a new continent, they're all rich, they're all integrated, they can be our partner in lots of things, then you have kind of one way of thinking about it. If you think they, despite everything that they've accomplished, that they're still, you know, uh, at each other's throats is one way to say it, but I mean, they're not really coming together integrated. They've had a huge amount of crises uh, including now the pandemic and basically a depression. Um, they haven't been able to deal with the migration flows well. The UK is, is leaving, you know, uh, the European Union. Russia has intervened militarily in Ukraine. You have big issues in Turkey and Greece and the Eastern Mediterranean. Um, there's People are concerned about Germany's weight. Germans themselves are nervous about that. So, you know, which way do you go? Uh, my argument would be, for 70 years, we played a role uh, as reassuring power to the Europeans. We were there, and we reassured the Europeans that we'd be with them. We also, frankly, reassured the Europeans about each other. People don't like to talk about that, but I think uh, the fact that Americans were always kind of around helped the Europeans have the confidence to build the Europe they have. And if you pull that out, my argument would be we're likely to face a Europe that's more like its history than its future, than the future we would hope for it. Others would disagree. They'll say, you know, you got to rely on Europe. We got other problems. We got to move on. So I think it's a debate. It comes down to really what's the value of NATO these days. I think most Americans in public opinion polls think NATO's, you know, still really good and they think it's, it's the most successful alliance in history. But if you, ask, if you dig below the surface, many of them want a better deal with the allies. They do think Europeans should pay more for our common defense. They don't really understand why 330 million Americans should be paying disproportionately for the defense of 500 million Europeans. And the Europeans are sort of on the defensive on that, and they haven't uh, really stepped up in a way. And I think I think any administration will do that. President Trump has tapped into that sentiment. Uh, President Trump has definitely been out front and really, yeah. but all administrations have really, usually right. more privately, but they, he was definitely more out in front on it. Well, he was, but the Obama, the Obama administration got the allies to agree to this 2% goal uh, that the pre President Trump has been harping on. It, but it happened actually in 2014 during the Obama administration. And that's been the benchmark by which we're holding the allies. They're all moving, you know, in some way toward that goal, but but we're, you know, we could also be stepping back. Uh, the Obama administration quadrupled the money it was providing for European defense after Russia uh, basically inter invaded and annexed uh, Ukraine, parts of Ukraine. Um, the president, uh, President Trump, has uh, added to that those funds, but in the last couple of years uh, has pulled back. In fact, last year he took money away from those funds to build the wall. <laughs> on the border with Mexico, is it funds away from the European defense to, so that'll be come up in the congressional authorization again about the National Defense Authorization Act. Is the Congress willing to keep the funding levels for U.S. troop presence in Europe at where they are or not? 
the president's also made a decision to uh, withdraw a lot of troops out of Germany and to move some troops around in Europe uh, to other places. Um, Pres uh, Vice President Biden has said he will want to review that, whether that makes sense or not. But that'll be an issue for the Congress, too, because they have to appropriate uh, that. Moving troops out of Germany at the moment would cost billions and billions of dollars more. So it's not a cost saver. Uh, uh, but you could make the case that maybe the way they're positioned today isn't in tune with our strategic priorities, but that probably should be a strategic review, not sort of just uh, a decision from one day to the next. But that'll be a big issue for the Congress, I think. Uh, uh, again, the money in our, in our presence. We've touched on a lot of issues here, and I'm sure we're going to have you back to talk more specifically as things arise. But I wanted to make sure that our audience got an introduction to you, Dan Hamilton, who's the director of our Global Europe program at the Wilson Center, recently arrived from SAIS. So welcome and thank you, Dan. Thanks very much for being here with me. Appreciate it. Thank you.